playlist later or come and steal his notes uh, later. It's a good one to sing. Uh, I'll show you why it's so good when we look at Romans chapter 12 together. Let me read for us the closing two paragraphs. Romans chapter 12 verse 9 is where I'm going to begin. If you don't have your own Bible, there's a black one um, hard copy near you. I encourage you to grab that to be able to see uh, God's Word for yourself as I aim to uh, expound its meaning. Then uh, aim to look to Christ and then aim to apply what that means for us today. And we'll do so in Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Paul writes, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Would you bow once more with me and let's ask the Lord for his help. Uh, Father, this is a passage of Scripture that is filled with action and imperatives. One in which I imagine many of us felt like I did in the past few weeks knowing we were getting to this point, realizing that my love does not look like that always and that my life does not look like that always. So Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts where we need conviction of the Holy Spirit, that your word would bring conviction of sin in our life. I pray you in your word and by your Holy Spirit at the same time would instruct us of what true love and a life lived for your name's sake looks like. But Lord, let, let us not just stay in instruction of mind. Lord, would you then propel us forward being motivated by the fact that you've loved us in this way. You have lived in this way so that we might be forgiven of our sins. Lord, that, let that be our motivation to then love and live in this way as we leave this place. That we would look different. Different than the rest of the world, but more similar to Jesus each and every day. And so God help us as we hear Your Word uh, having been inspired by your Spirit, uh, we pray for your help as we consider it for our own lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, I've entitled this sermon, Another Way. And I wonder if uh, you have a normal route that you just kind of go from home to work, uh, or from one place to another, from your house to the kids' school, 
And you kind of always go this way unless, uh, and, and maybe you go that way so often that you don't even put it in the GPS because you know the fastest way until you see red lights in front of you, not only from the stoplights, but the car lights causing traffic. And then you type into your GPS and it tells you to get off or to turn and to go a different way, another way than you normally uh, would go. Um, there is a way that much of the world goes. Uh, a way in which, unfortunately, a lot of Christians just go. Um, they, we, at times, have defined love in this way, or we've uh, expected our life to look this way, and we just kind of go along with the flow. As long as everyone's kind of going with us, you know, we kind of go this way. But when you come to a passage like this, it's a constant reminder that we're not to just go with the flow and just go the way we've kind of always gone and just to do what we've kind of expected to be uh, the norm or to love in the way that we've kind of been taught to love or to live the type of life that we've, you know, been around others that live. But no, to love and to live in accordance with the Scripture and to love and to live in accordance with Christ. And that may be a diversion from the way that much, for sure, much of the world lives. And unfortunately, much of the church, the Christian world lives. We want to live a life that's in line with Christ, in line with His Word. Uh, and so when we look at these, this passage this morning, I want you to consider another way. Uh, God's way, Christ's way uh, of living things. The way in which Christ Himself really did live. Um, in accordance with the Word. Uh, it, does our love, does our life match up uh, to these things? There is another way that, that we can live. And when you, as you heard in this passage, it's almost, I have had in the back of my mind this image of a boxer um, hitting one of those punching bags. And I don't know if you've ever tried. We had one in college and we tried and, and I failed miserably. But you know, you hit it once, and if you don't get into the right rhythm, then, you know, it comes back at you. But if you can get into the right rhythm, you can double hit that bag to where it's just like a, like a drum roll happening on the, on the top of the snare. Just, and that's what Paul's doing here. It's just like rolling off punches left and right, inspired by the Holy Spirit, just aiming to hit one punch after another over and over and over. Uh, gone are the days of those long sentences of Paul. Uh, if you have been in church or you've been in Romans or you've been with us, you might have heard that Paul has really long sentences, like sentences your English teacher would mark all up with red. Uh, well, he goes opposite of that today and is super short sentences. In fact, it's sentences that aren't even sentences. They don't even in include verbs sometimes. Um, but they're just one after the other. And I hope that after looking at all of these, um, we'll probably be convicted by a few of them. I hope at the same time you might be encouraged by a few of them to see, oh, I'm, I'm aiming to live in that way. I didn't used to, but I am now. I'm aiming to live better in that way. You might be instructed by some of these hits and blows to know, oh, that's what it looks like. It actually doesn't look like the way that I've been told um, and that we might be motivated to be able to live in these ways. So, regarding another way, there's really two main headings I'd encourage you to write down, and then I would challenge you to write as much as uh, you feel necessary to apply these to your own life underneath each of these headings. And the first one is this, regarding another way. First, an unhypocritical love for one another. An unhypocritical love for one another. And just in case you didn't think unhypocritical was a word, Graham said it was. Uh, so we're okay. And Graham said, Google probably said it was. So in accordance with Google, this is the word we're going with. Because I think it will uh, apply to this entire por portion of Scripture. Unhypocritical love, Romans 12, 9 through 13. And that love to be shown to one another. Where he says, let 
love be genuine. Actually, he doesn't say let love be genuine. He says genuine love. No verbs. Uh, just a statement of almost what is to follow. Uh, uh, kind of a, a topic, a heading of sorts for this entire paragraph. Genuine love. Uh, this is, it's got to be one of Paul's shortest sen sentences in this entire uh, well, maybe in all of his writings, but specifically even in this section right here. Um, but when he's talking about this genuine love, it falls on the heels of the paragraph that we looked at last week, which was one of each of us as individual Christians in the church using our gifts in specific ways. How each of us have been gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve one another uh, in a specific way for our church. This passage um, goes in a broader sense and says, if that's the way that you ought to live specifically as an individual in the whole life of the church, this is how you all ought to love, how you all ought to live uh, for one another's sake. Uh, and so there's aspects of this chapter that speak to individually, how you're to live differently as an individual um, for the sake of the body. And then this passage getting at how we're all to live similarly, but different from the way of the world in our love for one another. And all of Romans 12 comes on the heels of this command, overarching command that was to lay down our lives as an act of worship to God and not be conformed to the patterns of the world. And remember, we talked about that being like a child squeezing Play-Doh. Don't allow your life to be squeezed by the world like a child squeezes Play-Doh, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, this morning, we have gathered together in hopes of our minds being renewed by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God who resides in us, along with the people of God. We are acting in a renewal of mind process this morning in hopes that we would be transformed to love in this way and later to live in this way. So, genuine love is another way. It's different from the way of the world. This word carries um, that, that idea of the word unhypocritical, anipocritos, a, uh, a, a negative aspect uh, with hypocrite. Don't live as a hypocrite in the way that you love one another. Don't pretend. Don't be like an actor that's what that word would have been used for as, a, as an actor, uh, a play, a person in the midst of a play pretending to be someone that they were not. Don't let your love be fake with a mask on, acting as if you love someone when in reality you don't. Let your love be genuine. Well, what happens if you don't have genuine love for one another? As Paul is about to go on and describe what genuine love looks like, if these don't typify your love for others, pray. Ask for God to give you a love for others that you don't have in and of yourself. Pray for God to give you a love for people who are different than you, people who look different than you, talk different than you, had a different background than you, had a different education than you. Uh, pray that God would give you a genuine love for people knowing that He has first loved you. You being, myself being, very different from our Lord and God. Uh, in opposition to Him even, yet He has loved us. He first loved us. So we need to let our love be genuine uh, because God has shown us this type of love. For Paul already said earlier in Romans, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
so sinner who's been saved by grace if God has loved you in that way by sending Christ to die in your place? Can you not love another sinner who maybe even has sinned against you in the way that you have been loved in hopes that they too might be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ? The NASB uses that word hypocrisy to say, let love be without hypocrisy. May that be true of of us as Christians, but especially of us uh, at the Fields Church. We want our love to be different from the way of the world. And if that's the topic, if that's the heading, look at what the first thing that Paul, um, the first way Paul describes this genuine love. In the first paragraph, you, you might note there's no commands. There's no command. In English, it looks like there's command after command after command, but they're actually participles. Um, they, they're carrying the weight uh, of a command, but they're not commands themselves. So you, you might normally read them with ing on the end of each of those verbs, that you would live a life that is, second sentence, abhorring what is evil. Isn't it funny? That to say, have genuine love. And the first thing he says and, and uses to define genuine love is hate. And I know that that's what abhor means because I wasn't allowed to say hate when I was a kid. So I looked up all the other words that would define hate, like abhor and detest and things like that, and would use those instead of hate. Abhor. Let your love be genuine. Therefore, hate what is evil. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? To, to be loving, you have to hate some things. And Paul doesn't say just hate certain, uh, you know, anything in general. He tells us specifically what we're to hate, and that is to hate evil. Abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. What does genuine love look like? It looks like abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. Now, people, the world, and I feel this way as well, I want to define love um, by you accepting me as I am. And you not only accepting me, but even affirming all that I do, all that I say. But that actually wouldn't be loving. Not towards me, not towards one another in the church, and not towards those outside the church either. And yet, more and more, this is what our culture is telling us, what real love is. If you loved me, you would accept me. If you loved me, you would affirm everything that I'm doing, even if some of those things that they're doing might actually prove to be the death of them. Or even if some of those things that the world, or even you, or even myself, am doing... Uh, might prove to be hurtful to myself, uh, hurtful to others around me, uh, not in accordance with God's Word. A parent wouldn't allow a child to do things that were dangerous uh, to them um, just because the child says, you should love me for who I am. I'm allowed to do this dangerous thing. A parent would come around that child and and show them the dangers of that, show them the risks, prevent them from doing something that might bring harm to them or hurt them or goes uh, away from God and His Word. And this is what we are to do as Christians. This is what real love is. Real, genuine, unhypocritical love hates evil. Evil. Those things that God has defined as sin. Those things that God has defined uh, as going Uh, in the other direction of His holiness and His goodness and His character. Evil, uh, those things of the world, not the things of, of the Lord. And we're on the other side then to hold fast to what is good. Things that are true, things that are right, things that are holy. We're to hold on to those types of things. That's what genuine love is. This is the type of love that Jesus showed to the Samaritan woman. 
And not only did he go out of his way to go to a place where he would no doubt meet her, but he engaged with her and loved her. But he didn't uh, love what she was doing. She didn't, he didn't affirm the way in which she was living. And so he gave her the truth that he was the water of life, and if she would drink of him, she would never be thirsty again. Um, which will come into play later in our passage regarding giving our enemies water for their thirst. But Jesus went another step and said, but go and sin no more. Don't continue to live in that way. That way will prove to be the death of you, not only physical death, but eternal death and separation from God. And so we have to look beyond just a temporal um, view of our relationships with one another and our relationships with the world and think eternal. Because if we just think temporal, we're going to want them to like us and love us back and, and for us to have a, um, a cordial relationship. But we've got to care more about that person, more about God, to be able to speak the truth that might impact their eternity in that way. And so love... Genuine love, unhypocritical love is first abhorring evil and holding fast to what is good. Paul hits that punching bag again and the bag rattles against um, his fist over and over and gives us another two challenges in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection or love. So what is general, genuine love is loving one another with brotherly love. It seems somewhat repetitive. But here he goes from one word of love to another word of love. He goes from a vertical love of God, agape. This is what agape-type love looks like, the love in which God has loved you. This is what it looks like. It looks like uh, phileo love, the Greek word for a, for a horizontal love towards one another. So if you've been loved by God vertically this way, now show that love towards one another horizontally. And he uses two words based on that. One that speaks of a parental type love. That is philostorgos in loving one another with a brotherly love, a Philadelphia type love. So genuine love, and well, and let me just say, some of you, May, may say, I'd rather you not love me like my brothers loved me or my sisters loved me or my, even my parents loved me. But parental and brotherly love at its best are how we are ought to love one another. Um, one that, a parental love that is sacrificial, uh, selfless, uh, willing to do whatever for those children. A brotherly love that comes alongside one another and encourages one another and upholds one another. This is the type of love that we are to love one another. Does our, does our love for one another in this church look like that? Selfless, sacrificial as a parent, brotherly in coming alongside one another and supporting one another. I'm so thankful that I see aspects of that all over the place. But are there areas that we can grow? Absolutely. Myself included. That we would be willing to show that type of love for one another. Another hit of the bag, he, he continues on. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now this is not competitive in the sense that the reason you show honor is to outdo one another every step of the way. So if I show you honor, then you've got to show me honor twice to outdo me. And now I've got to show you honor twice to outdo you. Uh, it's not competitive in that sense. It's the idea, though, of going out of one's way to honor one another. Uh, you go first uh, type of honor. Uh, that you would be the one to honor the other before they have had a chance to honor you. And this ought to be done often. In fact, this is the verse and the phrase that we have uh, used, you as a church. Uh, we committed together to support um, some of our pastor's efforts 
in supporting other pastors in churches in our area, um, churches that are like-minded and, and can encourage one another. And this has been kind of the theme verse, Romans 12.10, that in a, in a scenario where pastors are often competitive and kind of wanting to say, oh, well, you know, we do this, or we have this many people, or, or we're able to do this, we have this much money, and this kind of, that, are, that we're not coming in to compete one another, but we're actually coming in to honor one another. It's never my aim at those lunches to tout anything that has happened in our church, but to hear about what's happening in other brothers' churches and to honor them for that. And that's just so countercultural to what we often see even among churches like ours. And we want that to pervade our eldership. We want that to pervade our membership. We want our church to be one that outdoes one another with honor. And so I want, I want you to consider, is that something, is that a way that you love other people around you? Do you honor them uh, in what's happening in their life? Do you praise them and encourage them for the good that you see in them often? Or is your mind more on what they don't look like and what they're not doing for you? Uh, I think the more we would honor and encourage one another, it would probably spur one another on to live in those ways that honor, first and foremost, the Lord around us. And so let us be a people, not that just placates and puts on a mask and fake honors people, but I mean really find something to honor that person for. And the more that we would do that, the more we... The other aspect of that is that maybe we do honor people, but we don't actually display that honor for one another. So who knows how you're honoring one another? We need to be more vocal with our honoring with one another, encouraging one another, speaking those words of honor to one another, um, quoting a scripture and saying, I see this in you. I'm encouraged. I'm challenged by this in my own life because of this in you. Let's be a people that honors one another in that way, that outdoes one another uh, in that. Might you, before leaving today, honor someone here at this church uh, for something they've done, something they've said, something that they stand for? Uh, let's aim to honor somebody today. That let our love be genuine. Again, you don't have that genuine love for a desire to honor somebody? Pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to override your flesh and to give you a desire to want to honor someone in that way. Paul doesn't stop. He keeps going. Uh, we look in verse 11. Each of these kind of tied together. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Uh, Paul used... Uh, this, this phrase uh, regarding this zeal that we are to have uh, here in, in a way that we wouldn't be slow towards zeal. That we wouldn't wait around but would be quick towards it. That we would move in its direction as often and as quickly as possible. We ought to live in such a way that we ought to be fervent in spirit. Uh, that word is describing one of having boiling water. Water that is bubbling over because of the fire that's underneath it. And there ought to be a passion, a, a source of fuel that is causing us to bo bubble over with fervency and zeal. That that's not slow in its means. But what motivates us is not fire, but what motivates us is the Lord Himself. Uh, what motivates us is the Gospel and His very Spirit who is in us that encourages us to live in, in that way. That we would be passionate uh, towards one another in our zeal and our diligence uh, towards one another. That being fervent in spirit, we would serve the Lord because when we're loving one another, 
in those ways, being motivated, motivated in those ways, we're not only doing it for that person, but we're doing it for the Lord. You loving one another in this way, in this genuine and unhypocritical way, yes, is doing it for the Lord, but go, let's go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that we're laying our lives down as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So when you horizontally love one another, not slothful, but with zeal, with passion, fervent in the Holy Spirit, being motivated by the Holy Spirit, you're serving the Lord. We love one another by serving, uh, or we serve the Lord by loving one another, which means if we're not loving one another in this way, there is an aspect of our lives that is not being lived in service to the Lord. And we don't want that to be the case. All of us want to lay down our whole life as an act of worship in service to the Lord. And so if there's an area of our love that doesn't match up with the participles of this paragraph, then we want to lay that before the Lord and say, Lord, help me be more quick to loving others. Help me be motivated by your gospel, not any selfishness in myself to love that person and expecting them to love me back. Um, let my motivation be of the Spirit and let all of it be done in service to you. This is what we are to, this is the way in which we are to, to live. He goes on, he continues, having more punches of the bag. Number, uh, verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. Rejoicing in hope. Paul's used this phrase earlier in chapter 5, verse 2, to describe rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Genuine love rejoices in God. And the world can love one another because they've seen the uh, common grace of God and experienced the common love of God that's shown to all mankind. But as Christians... We know the specific love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who died and rose from the dead for us to take the punishment for our sins. And if we know that type of love, then we're to love others in that same way. We're, to we're able to love others in an even uh, greater way, in a way that imitates and uh, illustrates the love of God in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. And so we're to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We're to be patient in tribulation. And this is a, a point that might be worth pausing and considering loving one another. Paul tells us in another letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 what love is. And one of those descriptors in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is that love is patient. Love is patient. Love is not quick to anger. Love is patient with those who aren't loving you back. Love is patient in the midst of tribulation that we can endure the obstacles of this life to be able to show love towards others. We give one another the benefit of the doubt. We are not quick to do that in our world. Um, those who demand love the most often demand it immediately uh, without patience and without showing others patience to um, eventually show that love. But God says here, His way, this other way, different from the world, different from the flesh that we used to live, this other way, this unhypocritical love is one that is able to be patient in tribulation. Again, 
It's not a command. It's an expectation. Genuine love is being patient in tribulation. Therefore, if there is not patience in your heart towards others in your way of showing love, then we're missing something. I think he closes this sentence, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation. What if I don't rejoice in hope? And what if I'm unwilling to be patient in tribulation? This is where I get that phrase, being constant in prayer. Pray. Ask the Lord for it. Ask the Lord for an opportunity to show love. Ask the Lord for a desire to show love. Ask the Lord for a willingness to do what you don't desire, even before you desire it, to actually love in those moments. We are to be constant in prayer, as Paul makes clear throughout all of his letters. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, always being prayerful, Uh, but especially in the midst of tribulation. We're to be constant in our prayers for ourselves and for one another. But then he ends with verse 13. What does another aspect of unhypocritical love for one another look like? Again, participle, contributing to the needs of the saints and seeking to show hospitality. That we are to uh, fellowship in the needs of the saints. That word in verse 13 for contribute is the verb form of the noun that we would use to translate church. Fellowship. Koinonio. And, And so in one sense, you could read this as we, as the church, need to church the needs of the church, the saints. For this is what the church does. It looks out. You can just think about the book of Acts and think about the early church in in Acts chapter 2 and and in other places. Um, Looking at those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ and seeing certain needs among their community and aiming to sell whatever is needed to meet some of those needs. Now that doesn't give any of us an excuse for laziness to not meet our own needs and demanding the church to come alongside us because the Bible and the New Testament are also clear uh, that we are to work faithfully to provide for ourselves and for our families and to give to to others. Uh, For if we don't provide for our own families, we are are not even doing what unbelievers are willing to do for, for their families. So this doesn't give us a... Uh, excuse towards laziness. But when there's a genuine need, we ought to meet it with genuine love in meeting that need, especially inside the church. Jesus himself said that the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And one of uh, the ways that that love is shown would be a contribution, a fellowshipping in the needs of others. How neat it's been to see different seasons and in different times and in different periods of different individuals' lives, we've seen the church come alongside uh, one another. Not perfectly, never perfectly, but attempting to do so faithfully and better than we did the last time. Um, But whether it was in the midst of sickness whether it was in the midst of pregnancy and having a child, whether it was in the midst of moving homes or whether it was in the midst of a loss of a job, uh, whether it was in the midst of loneliness, whatever it was, um, looking out and seeing those genuine needs and meeting them with genuine love. It's been one of the sweetest things to see. Uh, The members of the church, not just the pastors of the church or even the deacons of the church, but the members of the church contributing to the needs of the saints. That is not the saints in the Catholic Church. That is the holy ones. All of those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ who are set apart for this other way of life, uh, of love and of life. But not just to the saints, he says, and seeking to show hospitality. Now, 
hospitality is not simply just opening up your home with a big welcome sign on it um, uh, with you to be able to have people over with good smelling candles and good cooked food as much as uh, as good of uh, outshowing as that is. But what this word is meaning regarding genuine love, that word of hospitality is philozenos, which would again encapsulate that idea of horizontal love, but this time not parental love, not brotherly love, but love for the stranger on the outside, those who are different from us. Uh, We're willing to love others who are different from us uh, in such a way that we are showing the love that we have received vertically from the Lord. This is genuine love. This is the other way. It's important, church. It's important, Christian, for us to consider which of those am, am I not doing ing? Which of those participles, those ing verbs, are not happening in my life? And to confess that to the Lord, to confess it to one another, to ask for help and encouragement, to ask the Holy Spirit to help you to be able to live those things out. It also informs us of what real, genuine, a wholehearted, holistic, genuine love for others looks like and also motivates us by the love that we've received from God to go and do these things and to be encouraged by the areas that we are doing them already and to continue to grow in those things that we might look altogether different from the world. But he doesn't stop with love. He goes beyond that. The second thing I encourage you to write down is uh, that a, this other way of, of, uh, of life that the Lord calls us to live is a countercultural life towards all. We're to have an unhypocritical love towards one another in the church that extends even beyond the church as we saw hinted at in that hospitality. But here in this next paragraph, Paul goes to say that we need to have a countercultural life towards all people. This is contrary to the way that the world lives. It's contrary to the way that we once lived before we were transformed and made new and made alive by Christ. It's still the countercultural to the way our flesh still wants to live. For as you read these things, you're going to see, don't do this and do this. And you're going to know in the depth of your heart, unless you're just way more holy than I am, you're going to feel yourself, that's what I really want to do oftentimes. And it's much harder to do this other thing that the Lord is calling us to. But let's consider. Look in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now let me pause to say that if the first paragraph didn't include any commands, were all almost expectations of what genuine love is to look like, this paragraph is almost all commands. Bless. Bless and curse. Three commands, three imperatives in one short sentence. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. And yes, persecution can come from inside the church, but I think Paul is speaking about this persecution that comes from outside the church. Those who persecute you, speak ill against you, um, because of your faith in Jesus Christ, because of a position that you hold on identity or sexuality, because of your stance on the sanctity of human life, or because of your crazy religious perspective of living in such a way. We are to bless those who persecute us, bless them, not to curse them. If it was hard 
to honor one another with words inside the church, those who are also called to love you back, um, how much harder is it to eulogize, to speak a good word? That's what the word bless is. How much harder is it to speak a good word against those who have persecuted you? How much more patient do you need to be to look into the situation to be able to bless and to speak a good word of someone, not necessarily of someone's position or of someone's belief, but to speak good of a person even though they're speaking ill of you. This is what we're called to do as Christians. God is the only one who should pronounce blessing and cursing as He does in in the Bible. And we're to leave that to Him rather than taking matters into our own hands. And the reality uh, is that every one of us was already cursed because of our sin against God. And even our attempting and relying upon our good works to save us is a curse, the Bible says. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Curse be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. But, Paul goes on to say in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, listen, the blessing of Abraham, that is salvation by grace through faith, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. God is the only one who is to pronounce ultimate blessing and cursing. We deserved cursing because of our sin against Him. And yet Jesus Christ willingly came to this earth and lived the life that we couldn't live in accordance with the law. He took that curse upon Himself and died the death that we deserve and rose victorious over sin and death so that, he, so that we could enjoy blessing, which is salvation and eternal life and forgiveness of sin. So we're not to curse others. We, they, like we were at one point, already cursed. We're to bless. We're to speak a good word. And not just a good word, but the good word. The good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That there, the curse can be taken from those who have sinned against God through faith in Jesus Christ. And they can enjoy that blessing. This is... A, the countercultural way. Uh, those who are persecuting uh, us, it's, it's very often that we would go the opposite direction and run the other way, but how much more so do we need to stop and speak a good word and speak the good word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to, the, to them in those moments? This is one aspect of a countercultural life. He goes on, though. He says, Rejoice in verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I wonder if you were honest with yourself for a second to ask yourself if someone just shared with you this great thing that just happened to them in in their life and that was the one thing that you also had been hoping for in your life and they it happened to them and it didn't happen to you, would your first reaction be rejoicing? Or would your first action be weeping? Or when someone comes to you and they share a, a burden and a, something that's brought great heartache and a loss in their life with you, uh, weeping over uh, that moment, Hopefully, your first thought is not to rejoice that they're experiencing that, but are you rejoicing in that you're not experiencing it? This is a, an opportunity for us as Christians to live in a countercultural way, not only with those 
inside the church, but with those outside the church, and to put ourselves in those positions and to be able to rejoice with them that rejoice and to weep with those who weep. It's uh, the difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy is having a feeling um, like the other person. Uh, empathy is putting yourself in those person's shoes. Or having walked that road before, you know what it's like to rejoice or to weep in those moments, and so you can rejoice and weep. We want to be so connected with one another that we learn to empathize with one another uh, even more so. This is important for us as a church to, to be able to, to understand, to be able to live counter-culture, cultural towards those, including with our enemies. He goes on in verse 16 speaking about living in harmony with one another. Not to be haughty, but to associate with the lowly. And never to be wise in your own sight. We don't need to spend really any much time considering this, for we considered it last week from chapter 12, verse 3, where Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think, uh, then he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. We're not to think too highly of ourselves. We're to think lowly uh, or rightly of ourselves, not too lowly as well, as I mentioned last week. We're to associate with the lowly. This is countercultural. We spoke of it last week. We see it here in the text again, repeated for emphasis, and it would do us well to apply that. But let's continue on. Let's look at 17. Repaying no one evil for evil, but giving thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. No, there's not an opportunity to repay evil for evil. This is not the way of Christ. It is the way of the world. And it is the way of our flesh. For apart from the Holy Spirit of God working on our hearts, this is what we want to happen. Uh, husband and wife, think about those moments when unfortunately uh, a harsh word has been spoken against you. It's not often in our flesh right there on the tip of our tongue to speak the kindest, most loving, sacrificial, patient word in that moment. Or, or consider your relationship with your bosses at work or your co-workers or whatever it may be. When, when evil is done to you, our flesh's uh, natural instinct is not to do good but to do evil. And we're to live in a countercultural way, uh, a way count, counter to our flesh as well, in a way that would do good. Repaying no one evil for evil, but giving thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Giving thought to do what is honorable. It doesn't say you have to do what is honorable. It just says giving thought to do what is honorable. But lest you think, you should just stop at thinking about what would be honorable to do at that point. He continues on in verse 18 and says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Yes, there are situations that it will be utterly impossible to live at peace with somebody else. And it, uh, so long as it depends on you, because that other person does not want to live at peace with you. And you have to cut your losses at that point. But so far as it depends on you, we're not to just think about how we can live honorably with that other person. We're to go every step we can to be able to um, love that person well, to live in this way towards that other, other person, to live at peace with that other person. I wonder if this would describe you. So far as it depends on you, it just 
describes this like going as far as you possibly can to live at peace with someone. I wonder if you've gone a step or two with somebody in your life or even here at the church. You've gone a couple steps and it hasn't really settled things yet, so you just thought, I'll just go. But so long as there's another day, so long as there's another moment, it seems as if there's still possibility to make peace. And we ought to try to make every effort to do so in prayer, in the power of the Holy Spirit, but in accordance with God's Word to live at peace with those around us. it's, It's not just that, though. It continues to ramp up. And Paul here now quotes a couple Old Testament verses in closing. In verse 19, beloved, he, that's the, the word for God's love towards us. Uh, he uses here as a noun and, and calls them his beloved, his agapade. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And he puts its reason in the Old Testament. And here he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 32. And in verse 36, this is in what's called the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy. And in the Song of Moses, uh, Moses is speaking in the first half of the song. And then God is speaking in the second half of the song. And then Moses closes it in the last verse. But in that section that God speaks, he says... What, um, what Paul quoted right here. This is what it says in Deuteronomy 32-35. God says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Uh, the context is that uh, it, it's described God's goodness and His faithfulness. Uh, alongside, though, Israel's scoffing and forgetfulness of who God was. And so God speaks punishment on Israel by using a foreign nation. Nevertheless, God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. God God was saying, I'm going to punish you using this other foreign nation, but don't think that this foreign nation is out of my control. I'll in the end punish them for hurting you. How applicable is that for us right here and right now when we're persecuted, when we're spoke evil against, that we're not to take vengeance into our own hands, God might be using those, that persecution, the, those words to discipline us or maybe refine us to be uh, more dependent upon Him and trust Him more. But it doesn't give us the right to attack those other people. In the end, we let the Lord be the one who will judge in the end, who will pour out his wrath on all wrongdoing uh, in the end. As Paul has made abundantly clear in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, that the wrath that we've been saved from is through faith. In Romans chapter 2, verse 5, that the world is storing up wrath for itself for the day of judgment when it will be revealed. We're not to take matters into our own hands. We're to leave it to the Lord. This is countercultural. When you're spoken evil against online, not to repay evil for evil, but to be able to leave it in the Lord's hands. But he goes on in closing in verse 20, to the contrary, he even says, Not only ought you to leave it in the Lord's hands, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Here, Paul is quoting from Proverbs in chapter 25 and 21 and 22, and he says 
that giving someone food and giving someone a drink is like heaping burning coals on their head. I don't know about you, but that seems confusing to me. I'm like, what in the world is um, Solomon and all of his wisdom and his, uh, in writing Proverbs, and what is Paul aiming to mean by those verses? And honestly, commentators are all over the place on exactly what does that metaphor really mean. I think the most convincing, the most compelling uh, explanation and argument is one that in by doing so, when your enemy does evil to you, uh, 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 doing to the contrary, and when they're hungry, giving them food, or when they're thirsty, giving them drink, uh, then we're not only leaving it to the Lord's hands for wrath in the day to come, but we're also making an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to convict them and to bring shame for their sin upon their own heads. For coal and ashes are a sign of mourning over sin uh, in the Old Testament. And we're saying we're going to do good and leave it in the Lord's hands and hope that the Lord uses this to bring conviction of their own sin so that they might hear that good word of the gospel and respond in faith in Jesus. It's a challenge, isn't it? To want to say good, do good to those who are saying evil and doing evil to you, and yet this is the countercultural way. And there, there are thousands of years of church history since the time of Christ of Christians doing just that. We need to align ourselves with those who have done well and gone before us rather than the the majority stream and flow of those who call themselves Christians in our, in our culture these days. And he says, encourages us not to be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, a great summary statement there that, that uh, we are to persevere, to continue in this way until the Lord returns he who will conquer all sin and all evil in the end. And so let's consider for a second. Does our love and does our life uh, look like that? Or is our love fake and hypocritical towards one another, lacking one of those participles that Paul so clearly gave to us? Is our life more one of reaction to what's been done to us to redo to others or one more of laying it in the Lord's hands. I'd rather be characterized by one who's left it in the Lord's hands um, at the end of my life rather than one who took things and matters into my own hands in the end. For in the end, my life is in His hands. And again, Christ is uh, not only uh, our example, for he loved this way perfectly and lived this way perfectly. But he's also our motivation for these things, for we're doing these things for his name's sake, because he's loved us in this way. And he lived that life for us and was willing to die for us, the ultimate level of persecution for us, so that we could be forgiven of our sins. So, Christian, Let's live the other way. Let's live Christ's way. For He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you look out at the rest of the world and even have specific examples of people who call themselves Christians but don't love this way and don't live this way, uh, might you look to Christ who alone was able to love and to live in this way, knowing that He loved you and that He lived for you, but He also died for you so that you could repent and believe in Him 
And that you, as a Christ follower, could live in these ways. Not in your own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'd encourage you to do that this morning. And to come alongside us as we. We're not perfect at doing it. But we aim to do it as best as possible. In accordance with the Word of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, and with the help of the people of God. To love one another well and to live for Christ's honor. And so I'd encourage you to do that this this very morning. Let's pray. Father, help us for in reading a passage like this with line after line, hit after hit, blow after blow of um, descriptions of love and commandments to live that we don't um, look like. It's so easy to get down on ourselves. Um, Lord, may Your Spirit convict us where we need conviction, but may we not feel shame for Christ paid the penalty for our shame. He took the penalty for our sin. Uh, But having been convicted by Your Spirit, may we rise back up in faith and walk in obedience and faith to You in these ways. Lord, let our church look different. Let our church be willing to go this other way. And God, I pray that if there's someone here this morning who's yet to put their faith and trust in You, the only way, the only truth, and the only life, um, God, I pray that they would realize that You are love. And that you first loved them by sending your one and only Son. And that they would trust you in this very moment for the forgiveness of their sins. And be willing to lay down their lives to walk this other way. For they have been loved in this way by you. So God help us. You are our example, but you are our motivation. For you loved us in this way. And and it's for that, that you loved us and lived in this way for us, that we want to praise you and honor you. Not only in our life, but in this moment, even in our song and our praise as we rejoice together. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.